Welcome, welcome, guys. We are back for another episode of The Lock-In. I am joined, as always, by the dashing, the handsome, the debonair, Darrow Kearney. Welcome. Thank you very much, David. Delighted to be here again. And I'm delighted to say we are also joined by poker pro, poker author, poker podcaster. It's Thinking Poker himself, Andrew Brokos. Welcome. He's dashing and handsome, and I'm poker podcaster. <laughs> you were thinking, though. You was, I was emphasizing your brilliant brain. <laughs> I mean, David, you bring, yeah, I mean, this, this is the most brushed I've ever seen Andrew's hair. Um, so I think he's made a huge Literally, I, I told that, that was the five minutes before I came on here. Uh, I, had, I had Emily. Uh, <laughs> you look, you both look lovely. You both look very, very dashing and debonair. Um, the Irish Open just finished this week. This might be a story you're following very closely, Andrew, but we kind of have to start it off in this spot now Dara and I obviously have had many uh, connections to the Irish Open commentating on it and playing it and donating to it actually over a lot of years um, so a few nights ago an Irish uh, uh, an Irish poker open champion was crowned his name was Pavel Vexler which I assume is of the uh, Connemara Vexlers Dara that would make sense yeah yeah it's either the Connemara or the Donegal Vexlers there's only there's only two branches of the family that's it. Uh, the Ukrainian Poker Pro came in today for seven of nine. I actually watched this final table. Henry Kilban did a great job on commentary with Sven McDermott, Finton, Gavin and uh, Flushy. Um, he made pretty steady progress throughout. He was kind of chipping away and uh, and then he eventually got heads up with a good chip lead, uh, having hit the front with about four left and ended up beating two-time WSOP main event final tableist Stoyan Obreshkov, which many people might realise that he is a two-time WSOP final tableist, but such is the world we live in now that these WSOP final table main events happen and we're not really aware of who's in them or what's going on. But uh, credit to that man, he, he actually has done that twice. Was he, was he the lad who won the, 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 the first online one? Was... Different Stoyan. But Different Stoyan. You still get yeah, half marks, confusing. I think, for now and that. Very, very confusing. Yeah. Well, look, after a bit of business and a short battle versus the Bulgarian Beast Vexler, made some hands, uh, got into a very commanding uh, chip lead, got his queen six suited all in pre, dogged the ace king with a cheeky six on the river and won himself 266k. His second biggest result, he also came fourth uh, a couple of years ago in the PCA. Question I want to ask you, Dara, is will history forever put an asterisk beside Pablo Silva and now uh, Vexler's results in the Irish Open because they were online? Uh, yes, I think the short answer is yes. I think it, that's that's if they're even included in a list, which they may not, they may very well not be. Um, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I mean, if you had asked me who won the, the Irish Open last year, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I could tell you almost every other year since I've been playing. So it did it, it did materially change it. Um, I mean, this is common to all the festivals that moved online, I think, including the WSOP. But I think it's even more so for the Irish Open because it is such a unique live event. It is undoubtedly Europe's pro, pro, uh, premier live event. Uh, so having it online is just weird. Um, you know, a good proportion of the field are still Irish, because the Irish people want to play the Irish Open, but then you have all the top online beasts and uh, they're generally the ones that end up on the final table. So it, um, it yeah, it feels materially different. Yeah, Sean Conroy came 11th and Ivan Tononi, uh, naturalised Irishman, I'm sure we're claiming them these days, came 12th, but they were the top finishers. It was a completely international uh, final table, bereft of an Irish presence. Andrew, Darrell kind of alluded to it there. WSOP, 
WPT and a lot of other online brands, frankly, uh, have moved to online homes in the last you know year, year and a bit. Um, do you think that this has maybe an upside where it has pushed online and live poker closer together? I'm, I'm sure that's true. Um, I know that like, so at, at the start of the pandemic, uh, I was kind of worried, you know, I, I, I'd stopped playing live poker. I wasn't super interested in, or I don't have great online poker options available to me in, in the US. And I was worried if my coaching business also dropped off, I was gonna sort of not have a lot to, <laughs> to do. Um, the, uh, the coaching actually has been busier than ever. And a big part of it was a lot of people who had either never played online poker before or had not since Black Friday in the United States. So first time in 10 years almost um, are moving back into online poker and they're sort of like how does all this people are three betting me what am I supposed to do <laughs> like um, so I actually have I've found I'm busier than ever and many of it is uh, people who are previously exclusively or almost exclusively live players who are now playing online for the first time um, I don't know that that's driven I mean I don't think most or any of those people are playing WSMP or WPT events necessarily uh, I'm sure that's that's helping but yeah I do think the the pandemic has uh, certainly made that push for a lot of people who were very reluctant to get started on online poker. Uh, ultimately, they they want to play poker. And if, if online is the only game in town, they're going to do it. And yeah, I think what you're driving out is correct that for many of those people, even if they always prefer live poker, you know, now that the um, the the dam has been breached, you know, they they this will not be their final foray into online poker, I imagine. Yeah, I think you're right. We spoke on the last show about how habits have changed, and, and I think that's probably a, a good extension of it. Before we move on, I do want to ask you, Daryl, what is your favourite Irish Open memory? Uh, this is a difficult one because uh, I have a lot of bad memories, not so many very good memories, just based on my on how I've run in the uh, event myself. Um, I think I went about 10 years without cashing it uh, right at the start, which was a source of annoyance and uh, much amusement to my friends. But... And, and there were some really brutal early exits. Um, I think the first year I played it, I might have been the second person to be eliminated. Um, uh, so my my first particular memory uh, that I'm going to share is from somewhere around 2010, 2011. It was one of the big Irish Opens. It was the one, I think, where they got over Phil Helmut and Negreanu and um, those people uh, to sort of bump up the uh, prestige of the event. And again, I lasted about three hours, I think. Um, particularly brutal exit as well. I won't, I won't bore you with a bad beat, but it was a bad beat. And uh, I remember I was storming out of the room, like in my usual post bust out dungeon of like this shit again. And I ran into um, the beautiful and charming Claude Hansen, who was one of the organizers. And Claude was like, what, are you out again? Are you out already again? Cause she knew my track record at this stage. Um, and uh, then she said, oh, will you come back and do some commentary? And I was like, I'm really not in the mood now. And she was like, but you are literally the only person who's been knocked out at this point. Who else <laughs> commentary? So, so I reluctantly went back. She brought me in to meet the legend that is Jesse May. Um, we'd never met before. Uh, obviously, I knew who he was. He had absolutely no idea who he who I was. So I saw Claude go in and talk to him. And then I saw him frantically typing my name into the Hendon mob. And as I was going in, he was scrolling down through my Hendon mob. And he goes, oh, this is Daryl Kearney. Uh, you, have, uh, you have a lot of caches on your record. Um, uh, looks like you cash a lot in Ireland, uh, which got me off. I'm already in a bad mood. I don't want you to be told that I only cash in Ireland. 
So I made a point of pointing out that I do actually have a lot of caches outside of Ireland as well. It was just there was a lot in Ireland. So if you looked at it very quickly, you would think I was an Irish only phenomenon. Um, but after that uh, poor footing, we, we actually got on famously, myself and Jesse. And of course, uh, regular listeners of the chip race will know that Jesse's is the first voice you hear at the start of every single chip race. He's the guy who does our intro. Um, that was memory one number one. This, this second memory is from the same year. Um, I was at home and I was scrolling Irish poker boards, the Irish poker forum. And suddenly I saw the name of my very good English friend, Eames, John Eames, popping up a lot. And people were getting very, very, very angry. And I was like, John is literally the most inoffensive man you, you could ever meet. What has he done to anger everybody? What had happened was he'd given an interview the previous day to with uh, Tatiana, who's also been on the chip race. And she asked him uh, what he thought about the standard of Irish poker play. And he gave a very direct and honest answer that we were all shite. <laughs> this, this did not go down well. So there were, there, there were all sorts of, uh, you know, macho, like, who is this Brit telling us we're all shite thing? So I, I thought, okay, maybe I better go and have a word with John. John was down through the last three or four tables at this point. He actually ended up final tabling from what I remember. But I went in and I could see the whole table was literally glowering at him. And John, like, was looking around nervous. He couldn't understand what was happening. So I said to John, how's it going? Or no, he said to me, uh, uh, Dara, how's it going? And I go, well, I'm fine, but you might be in trouble here. You're, you're, you're the least popular Briton uh, in history since Cromwell. Um, and uh, he, he, I had to pull him aside and explain what had happened. So he did, he did rush out a sort of a, oh, I was, uh, I got carried away in the, in, in the moment. And um, of course, I know there are good Irish poker players and I'm friends with many of them, et cetera, et cetera, to try and allay the thing. He ended up on the final table, actually. And um, yeah, it was, it was good. But like anybody who knows John knows he is literally the most inoffensive man in the world. It was bizarre to see him at the center of this storm. <laughs> Good stuff, yeah. I think my favourite memory, actually, well, I suppose it, like, there's always a, has to be a financial incentive in the back of my mind here with this, but uh, it was the year I didn't actually play it, but I commentated with Emmett Kennedy and I got the opportunity that year to commentate alongside Cara Scott and Mike Sexton and Dan Harrington and Fergal Nealon, all those legends. And uh, and then, of course, it was the year on the final table that Dunica OD got slow roll, but then spiked the six on the river, which was a great viral moment. And, uh, and then, of course, our good friend who we were staking at the time, Kevin Killeen, chopped it. So that was quite nice, Dara, wasn't it? That would, that would, that, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people regard that as the low point of the Irish Open because uh, the numbers were way down, the buy-in was down, almost no um, top foreign players travelled for that year. But from a purely per personal perspective, we had a great year that year. Um, <laughs> and, that, and, and, and the one thing that did come out of it was that Donica slow roll, which is definitely the most watched Irish Open moment ever. The video of um, you, you guys commenting on it went, went viral and got several million views on YouTube. <laughs> indeed it did well look we will get you back in here andrew before we just like go off reminiscing about all our irish open favorite bits um guerrilla marketing by training sites that's the headline i've given this bit two public spats last week i'm not sure if you're aware of either but i'll give you the quick cliff notes on it dto took on raise your edge via dom and ben cp who clearly don't like each other at all I did uh, see you did see this yeah jamie stables got in the middle of it for some reason to defend ben cp who dominic was very quick to point out actually has a sort of affiliate type deal with razor edge so he was you know thrown away as not being uh, unbiased and whatnot and it just kind of kicked off and it got very clear who likes who and who 
thinks whose products are shite and that's kind of fine. Then not to be outdone, literally a day later, BBC and Richard Shields, aka Ginge Poker, got into a back and forth after BBC bin Ginge's bundle uh, hours after it went live on the BBC site. Ginge said that his video simplified poker and that his content had been pulled because it might harm BBC's chances of selling more complicated bullshit. Uh, BBC uh, got back uh, in the ring here and said that uh, the content that Ginge Poker put forward was weak and he couldn't put his name to it. He claimed that any independent high stakes coach who uh, would judge it uh, would decide it was rubbish and he was willing to pay said coach thousands to do that independent review. Dara, you said to me a few weeks ago how this pandemic was making some people go nutty. Um, are these public airing of grievances part of that or are they marketing strategies? The reason I say that is because after the BBC stuff happened, I only saw his ads on my timeline for all my social media. Um, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I don't think it's necessarily conscious marketing, but it, uh, but I weirdly, like I know, normally I think this kind of negative marketing doesn't necessarily work, but weirdly in this case, I've... A lot of recreational players have said to me, for example, that they'd never heard of a lot of these products until until this spat, and now they were encouraged to go and check them out. Mm. So I kind of feel that it helps. I, a few people also told me that they renewed to their subscriptions to DTO after <laughs> after John called out Ben CB. So I do feel it, it could possibly be effective. And and Andrew's holding his hand up, so he's Andrew's clearly one of them. I think that was certainly effective for Dom. Um, on the other stuff, I'm not sure, uh, but I do feel that the pandemic is definitely a, a, an impact here. The, the latest report I read suggested that um, over a third of people who recover from coronavirus develop mental or neurological problems within six months, which keep is a very light scary Arnie, keep it light. <laughs> yeah, which is a very scary thought. If you think about that, like we maybe we've all had it and don't know, maybe a third of the population are actually wandering around. Uh, certainly, we've seen some very bizarre behavior uh, in the last year, which from from people I would normally consider very very sane and uh, and grounded. So I think it is getting to everybody. I also feel that you know, and, and I've said this before on the show, but like live events where people meet up, that they become de-escalating, uh, take, take the pressure out of the situation. When everybody's cooped up at home, just scrolling their Twitter uh, timeline every day, looking for something to get outraged over or some argument to start, and they're not actually seeing these people in person for a, lo for a long time, um, I think that's, that's a recipe for the sort of spats that we're seeing right now. So obviously my next question then is for you, Andrew, would you consider picking a fight with Michael Acevedo in an effort to boost both of your sales? <laughs> I think that's not really my, uh, my, my brand, but yeah, but I guess that probably would his... like, I, so I, I have the problem of. <laughs> he told me your book was rubbish. I'm just saying, he said that to me personally. So I just like to know your response. <laughs> I'm just gratified that he read it. <laughs> um, oh, you're doing it all wrong. Yeah, I, I think I, I have to be very careful about getting getting involved in any sort of like argument on Twitter because with, with my background in debate, I am like once I sort of sink my teeth into something, like I definitely will take it further than anyone else wants to. Like it's <laughs> it's very hard for me to uh, 
let let someone else have the last word or even when I do like even when I sort of manage to show that restraint of like okay people are probably sick of like this back and forth on Twitter like it's still continuing to go on in my head for a long time like once <laughs> once I invite that argument into my headspace it's it's there for a while so I have to be pretty careful about like what I choose to uh engage in this is it would not be a wise thing for me to try to do strategically it would, it would be poor strategy <laughs> I still want you to give it a try now somehow. Go on, say something, say the meanest thing you can think of about Michael Acevedo. His name is difficult for some people to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. Okay, the uh, staking gift that sort of went viral this week, uh, Patrick Leonard tweeted, Lol, weird staking arbitration I had to do. Player A is backed by staker for MTTs. He plays 10K tournament. Amateur knocks him out and then finds him on the next break and hands him 10K and says, sorry for knocking you out. Please take it. Does player A keep the money or does it go on the stake? Now, before I ask you both to weigh in on this, people who believe money should go back to the staker included Max Silver, Matt Salzberg, David Baker, Brandon Shaq Harris, Doug Polk, Adam Owen, Melissa Schubert, Johnny Vibes, and Melissa Burr. People who felt the money should stay with the player, essentially thinking of it as a gift, include Dan Morellas, Rupert Elder, Tony Dunst, and David Yan. Neil Farrell suggested a joint roulette spin-up, which maybe is the nicest compromise of them all. Guys, what do you think? Andrew, go first. Uh, I think it should go to charity. I think if you find yourself in a situation, like, I think it's perfectly reasonable that uh, this is not a situation that's going to be anticipated by even a, a well-drawn contract is, is probably not going to anticipate this scenario. I don't <laughs> think there's uh, a clear answer of where it should go, which is why you're, you're seeing these. I mean, you're seeing the division of opinions because there really isn't a right answer. Um, and I think you know, it's, no one really deserves it, right? I mean, uh, I guess there was, like, I think Doug Polk's actual comment was, was first, like, I wouldn't have even accepted it. I, I think a number of people were in that boat of like, why did you even accept the money from the person in the first place? My view on it is, uh, you know, someone who's, who's going around handing out $10,000 probably doesn't need it all that badly himself. Um, I think if it's kind of ambiguous where it should go, uh, I, I'm sure that there are many charitable organizations that would make better use of it than uh, either the, the player or the, um, the staking house. I can give you a more uh, an answer to the actual question, uh, but I'll, I'll give Dara a chance to talk. Yeah, I mean, my answer to this would be, would would depend on whether I was a stake player <laughs> or a staker. <laughs> if I was the stake player, I'm definitely keeping the money, and from the staker, I'm demanding uh, demanding it comes back on the stake. No, but on a serious note, um, I was actually called in to do arbitration on a not not exactly the same, but somewhat similar case um, at the Party Millions in Rio de Janeiro where Jack Sinclair had put somebody into um, a 1K side event. Uh, so on a total free roll, um, you know, they had 20% of themselves or whatever. Um, that player ended up final tabling, but then at the last minute party added 10K entry to the main event to everybody who made the final table. So the question was, does Jack now have 80% of the main event as well? Or does he just get 80% of the cash? Um, so it was kind of similar because it was something which wasn't anticipated, but ar arose as a bonus. My opinion in those situations is that since it's the staker's money that creates the situation where they're in the tournament in the first place, anything, any, 
any additional benefits that accrue from that, be they leaderboard benefits, additional promotions, buy thing, or in this very bizarre case, somebody just handing you your money back, it is part of the stake. So that will, that, that would kind of be my opinion on the matter. Yeah, I didn't quite. It was actually. Uh, myself. Oh, sorry, go ahead, David. No, please continue, Andrew. All I was going to say was I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say it was, it was actually my my partner Emily, who Dara has met. Um, Dara knows, I should say. Um, she was actually the one who brought this to to my attention, and um, or the what what she kind of suggested, which I thought made sense, was um, you know this person probably does not go around refunding buy-ins to every single player they eliminate from a tournament, right? There was probably something about this particular player. He was pretty, you know, like, especially you know, friendly or pleasant to have at the table or something. Like, There's probably some reason why this guy got a refund and, and most people didn't, which I do, I do think it, it's not solely a matter of, oh, he just happened to be in the tournament and the backer put him in. Like, it sounds like it was something that was a more a matter of, like, it was more a gift to him than a, a refund to the, the backer. Um, I thought that was kind of a compelling argument that I had not seen come up elsewhere in the uh, in the Twitter debate. Yeah, that seems like a very reasonable argument. It's, yeah, I think that 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 does differentiate it from the situation I was talking about. Mm. Yeah, no, it, it's an interesting one, and it definitely is one that can be seen from all angles, which probably uh, leads us back to what you said at the start, Andrew, which is that when uh, there's no clear answer, there's no uh, right or wrong here and, and I guess it is just a matter of interpretation in the end Pad's ruling uh, he was quite clear about it he said I wrote up that I believe that morally ethically if you decide to accept the gift it would be a good gesture to keep 5k and give 5k to the backer or at worst keep 5k cash out and remove 5k off your makeup however uh, technically I don't think backer is actually bound by anything to receive money if not offered by the stakey so he essentially made a ruling and a recommendation to counter the ruling if you like but no uh no, nothing bound on that which is a probably a pretty reasonable position to take as well it's just a very tricky one and it's rare for um someone to create a uh, puzzle of that nature for us these days that we haven't uh, maybe thought through before moving on the 10th anniversary of black friday is less than a week away did you know that did either of you know that i've been following this i've been counting the weeks uh, ever since actually I, I did a newspaper interview about this yesterday but <laughs> yes there we go there we go yeah. well look april 15 2011 who saw it coming and who would have thought that the vast majority of americans would still be offline today and of course uh, those that are online are not part of the global online ecosystem Dara, you didn't see it coming per se, but you were sort of tipped off in the days before. Do you want to reveal that? Yeah, I got a very cryptic message from an, um, a Full Tilt employee that I was friends with, um, very close friends with, uh, advising me to remove all my money from the site. Um, and, I'd, and, and I obviously asked why, and, and I was told, like, I can't go into the reasons, but I strongly advise you to remove all of your money from the site immediately. Um, and um, I mean, my, I, I was paranoid that they were going to ban my account or something, uh, that, 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 that there was something personal to me. Um, so I remember getting up on that day and immediately my phone was just exploding, uh, with all, all the notifications, obviously from, uh, all my friends. And then I, when I, once I realized what was happening, I was, all right, okay. That's why I was told to take my money off. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was, so I, so, so I was lucky on that front for sure. 
I think I got cryptic, uh, cryptically tipped off as well, although I, di I didn't read between the lines like you, Dara. So I had just been employed by Full Tilt to be their new blogger. Michael Craig was gone. They'd offered me the gig, but only on a provisional basis. I was just counting the money. I was like, oh, my God, if I get Michael Craig's deal, that's like uh, 250 quid a blog. Uh, 300 uh, yeah but it was 250 or 300 quid a blog it was a hundred percent rake back um, and it was a 30 quid hourly on every hour you're on the site and I was like oh my god that's like a quarter of a million quid before I even win a dollar at the poker tables if I can get that deal so I was just thinking that's it I'm made for life and I wrote my first blog and I sent it in they said okay it's going to be out on the 13th of April and I was like that's brilliant great can't wait to read it and on the 13th of April it didn't appear and I was like oh well maybe it'll be there tomorrow and I nudged the guy gently and the guy said to me there's a shit storm going on in here right now David your blog is the last thing we're thinking about to be perfectly honest it might be on the site in a day or two I don't know now I didn't read between the lines there so I left a chunk of money on the site which was of course frozen for a while but we did get it back in the end Andrew more importantly back in the day you won the 2k f tops for 450k you also had a third and a scoop for a 500 rebuy event I remember so you must surely have missed online poker dearly uh yes <laughs> I mean I think online poker was already becoming um I mean the, the games were getting tougher already obviously like Black Friday accelerated that a lot I don't think that was the only thing that led to me playing less and less online poker like you know after Black Friday I I relocated to Canada for a while to continue playing online even after I sort of wasn't permanently in Canada anymore I was still traveling to play like the scoop and the W coop anyway and just like I didn't do that in 2019 um it just over time the games were were getting less and less good so I I do think there's a fair chance that like I wouldn't have you know like, part of what I miss about online poker is not just like being able to play online poker <laughs> it's like online poker in 2008-2009 was uh special in in a lot of ways and um I mean Black Friday definitely like accelerated the problem but uh, things were already moving in, towards towards a more efficient market where it was not quite so easy to win uh sums of, of that uh sort Sarah, how do you think the industry has <laughs> coped over the years? Obviously, that was a huge curveball. Mm. All the sites basically sort of shifted their focus to a, maybe a Europe-centric schedule. There was a lot of different approaches to marketing over the years. Do you think where we've settled now 10 years later is the marketing approach and the industry we deserve, given all the actions that have taken place since that moment? Or do you think maybe better smarter things could have been done um I, I i think better smarter things could have been done for sure i think the industry sort of bungled its way first of all they bungled their, their way into the crisis um they really should have seen this coming they should have hired lobbyists to to, to ensure that uh, at least they fought against it before it happened um so i think that was a criminal failure well not criminal but that was a very very bad failure by the uh, by, by the industry in general um I think it it, it it was such a big curveball. Um, some responded better than others. Obviously, poker stars deserve a lot of credit for for, for stepping in and uh, playing paying back players immediately, and also ultimately taking over full tilt and and ensuring that American players got paid out there. So, certain aspects of the industry did very well. I think the industry as a whole didn't do great, um, and they just kind of bungled around um, from. 
lots of there were lots of false starts let's say in, in terms of how poker was marketed now I accept that it's getting harder and harder for the sites in the current situation because more and more countries are regulating and every country has its own regulations now. So the regulatory mess that a site has now compared to, say, 10 years ago when every market was pretty much the same makes makes it a lot more difficult for them. But um, I definitely feel that um, fairly big mistakes were made in terms of who they marketed at and how they marketed to those particular demographics. Yeah, it's a good point. I remember uh, just a few days ago, I was asked actually about the, the Black Friday anniversary, if we're going to call it that. And someone said to me, how has your role as an ambassador changed? Well, of course, I wasn't an ambassador back then, but I was kind of trying to think about the questions. They will live had been or how has the role of an ambassador changed? I suppose the fact that poker was on TV, uh, essentially paying for like expensive ad space on quite you know, good quality TV in the States and, and even here in Europe. And that was all being paid for by the poker sites. The value of a beast or the value of a Cinderella story were was very clear because patching that person up and telling that story on TV to people who hadn't played poker yet and might be your new market that you were after made sense. Whereas obviously now we've moved much closer to a content creation model and I was I was trying to think about those two things as, as 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 maybe interlinked that maybe Black Friday at least accelerated that journey towards the content creator model as opposed to the patched up pro or patched up Cinderella moneymaker type story. Andrew, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I guess the the only thing I would say, which is fairly obvious, is that you know the just television uh, is much less important as a medium in general, even than it was 10 years ago. I mean, things like YouTube and, and streaming, I mean, that was technically it existed, but I don't, I don't know how many people were watching streams 10 years ago, certainly compared to, to now. Um, so I, I think a fair amount of that is just the evolving mediascape, uh, regardless of, of anything going on with Black Friday. But I mean, I imagine it is a contributing factor. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, okay, next up, and, and this is a story that we have uh, visited over and over and over again, but there was another little twist, and we'll keep it short, I promise. Mike Postle has given up, would you believe it, on his $330 million lawsuit. Dara, it turned out that Dan Smith on our show uh, a week ago uh, had it exactly right that uh, lawyers would have been queuing up to uh, represent him in this uh, very tasty um, legislation, or sorry, uh, lawsuit of his, um, and he would have had no trouble finding... Uh, representation had his case been even a bit stageable um to quote more uh, mo narwara from poker news I, I really like this opening line he said mike postle's legal record will not wind up as spotless as his live stream poker ledger <laughs> um as he had dismissed his own suit according to an april 1st court document i must say i did take note of the date on that i was wondering if we were having our leg pulled um, consequently, as Brill and Todd Whittles had countersued with a, an anti-slap suit, um, they will now win those uh, by default, I guess. Um, Possa will have to pay some legal damages. He's liable to pay their legal fees. He may even be liable to pay above and beyond their legal fees. So in short, very happy to hear that. Fuck my Possel. I think we can all agree. Uh, that's just a, a, a nice ending to that. So anyone, actually, sorry, Andrew, we've, we've weighed in on this many, many times. Would you like to say fuck Mike Postle or words to that effect? Get it off your chest. Every other guest <laughs> well, has. What I'll say, and uh, I don't know if you guys, I think maybe you guys have not had uh, Carlos Welch. Has he been on your show ever? Carlos He's has been on the show, not, not this, this show, yeah. 
Okay, so so your listeners may be familiar with him, but a mutual friend of ours um, who does not play a lot of live poker, uh, but he did travel to to play this stream, and he spent a lot of time. You know, obviously this was before uh, there were these um, widely circulating stories about cheating going on, um, and you know he'd heard about this kind of you know this, this crazy guy on stream who was playing in this really exploitative way, and he spent a lot of time studying how the person played and thinking about how he wanted to play against them. And of course he lost because it's hard to beat someone who can see your cards. Um, and I think that's like part of the, you know, obviously, obviously cheating is bad. Obviously people lose money when, when they get cheated, but I think there is damage that's done above and beyond the money that's lost. And I remember people saying this back in the, in the days of like the UB, your absolute poker super user thing also. I mean, there are people who they retool their game because they're losing. And like every single one of my bluffs gets called, what am I doing wrong? And then you know they're they're it, it's psychologically painful to, to be losing like large sums of money and feeling like it's your fault or it's something that you're doing wrong. It's affecting how you're playing in other situations. Um, there are probably even people who quit poker over like things that happened on on Ultimate that um, it really it goes so far beyond just you know I, I lost this money in in the game. It really messes with you um, psychologically and, and and leads to you wanting to. Uh, change what's probably a perfectly fine gear, at least not like broken in the way that you think it's it's broken. Um, you're, just, you're getting even less reliable feedback than you typically do from, um, from I just think it, it's really insidious the harm that it does. And, and, you know, Carlos was a small example of that. Yeah, that's a great point. I, you know, seeing it from all, all the different angles, I'm, I'm not sure I ever quite thought about that exact one, which was that, yeah, of course, people would have, um, in an effort to develop counter strategies, done things that were not good counter strategies because as you say you can't beat the man who who can see your cards um some good news or at least some light at the end of the tunnel maybe for for everyone the wsop made a big announcement last week they're planning to do a live festival in the autumn if all goes to plan cards will be in the air on september 30th uh, in the rio and there will be a series spanning roughly two months it's pretty much the full sort of seven week type thing we've, we've gotten used to uh, there is also a plan to follow that up with a wsop europe in the lovely rosvedov czech republic in mid-november plus there will be an online bracelet event series type thing in the summer presumably on a combination of WSOP.com and GG Poker again. Okay, lads, give me a percentage chance that you will both be attending. Dara, go first. Um, 75, 80%, somewhere in that region. <laughs> um, very, very keen to go, uh, subject to obviously the pandemic being under control, me being fully vaccinated and um, yeah, still being alive at that point. But uh, yes, let's say 75, 80% nice i think that that's a pretty good line uh I, I would probably take the under though um i could anticipate uh a number of things happening yeah i, I mean i i think they have a lot of incentive to sort of announce states and, and like tell people that it, it is happening if you remember they were they were very late to cancel the 2020 wsop um i, th I think they just they, if they're not going to be using the space for anything else anyway, which my understanding is, you know, understandably, uh, the the demand for convention space in, in Las Vegas is not high right now. So I think it's sort of um, not quite a free roll, but like fairly close to a free roll for them to just announce dates. I don't know how many real commitments they've made to this in terms of uh, hiring deal. I don't, I don't know what like non-refundable expenses exactly they would have, but um, you know, I, I think that the mere fact that they've announced dates, uh, I don't think we should put 
too much stock in that. I mean, I, I think 75% is, is probably a reasonably good number, but I think a lot of people are probably over or uh, overweighting the significance of their having announced dates and saying like, you know, we, we would like to do this or we're planning to do this. Yeah, without trying to kind of get into the weeds of pandemic talk, and I, and I know this is almost like a political conversation for a lot of people as well, but Dara, we were talking off air just before this about the possibility of mutation and the possibility of unforeseen side effects down the line uh, and all the different kind of long COVID type things and, and just ways in which we can't foresee right now, you know, just, just the way the world may look several months from now may, may not be that sort of great spot where we're all getting on planes again and flying to countries to pass chips around a table you know it's not healthy at the best certainly to, to have a gathering of that size i mean it, it's one thing to say oh you'll be able to hug your grandparents you'll be able to you know i don't know what else but you know to, a, a gathering of thousands of people in, in a space where they're sharing air uh, i mean i'm i'm optimistic about it happening but i i don't want to call it anything close to a lock uh, I, I there's a lot that could go wrong a lot that could change between now and then yeah, because when I was thinking of my my own line, I was thinking I was about 50-50 and I thought, Dara's probably going to be lower than me. Dara might actually be a bit boxier. So I was interested to hear you say 75-80%, Dara, but of course it was based on a, a number of caveats. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I am keen to go to the WSP again. I mean, this is normally the time of year where I would be anticipating uh, and doing all the preparations and looking forward to seeing Andrew and Emily and Carlos and all those, those fine people in the big Brokos house. Um, and certainly last year, I knew pretty much from the start that that wasn't, wasn't going to be the case, but I didn't anticipate that it, it, it would spread to stretch in as far as it has into this year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm one of the less big enthusiastic fans of live poker in general. And I've been talking to my wife about this and saying that even when it comes back, I will be a lot more selective about what I travel to, but certainly the WSP is always going to be on the list. Yeah, and why not? It is uh, definitely the most uh, fun one when you, when you do go. Uh, Dara, we, of course, around this time in the show, we come to you for a strategy titbit, a nugget. Uh, what have you got stored this week? Okay, well, this week I want to talk about Light 3 betting, and in particular Light 3 betting at different stack sizes. Um, obviously, any, light, any, any 3 betting range in general should be fairly polar. You want to three bet the really strong hands that you're happy to uh, to get four bit with. You want to choose hands that you don't mind having to fold to a four bet too, that you're not giving up too much equity. So you don't really want the hands in the middle, the hands that like are good, but not great hands. They won't feel great about either folding to a four bet or, or, or calling a four bet. So th that tends to be your calling range and your three betting range tends to be polar, but the types of hands you choose also depends very much on the stack size. 20 big blinds, for example, 20, 25, 30 big blinds, where most of us tournament players live. When you're at that sort of stack size, you want to prioritize, you're, you, you're actually rooting for folds a lot uh, when you three bet, um, and particularly when you three bet light. So you pick blocker type hands, uh, ace X, maybe some suited king X, those types of hands are your light three bets. When you're 100 big blinds deep, say at the start of a tournament, or you're a cash game player, it's much more likely that you're first of all it's less valuable to just have the have, have the guy fold and you pick up the blinds and 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 the open but you're also much more likely to get flatted rather than four better opponents playing four better fold so you're better off picking more um hands that have some playability if if you're um 
if your three bet is flatted. So stuff like Jack nine suit of queen nine suit, it now comes into its own as a, as a light three bet um, rather than the um, ace X suited or king X suited. Very good. I like that. And I, and, I, and I like how succinctly you put it. Uh, Andrew, obviously, you've written the book on game theory, uh, a book we've both read and very much enjoyed. Have you any thoughts on this particular concept? I do. I, I was thinking I, I could think of one uh, example of, of a case where a three betting range would not be polar, which is when you just don't have a calling range, period. And um, this does come up in raked cash game situations, like actually to, to come back to uh, that scallywag Michael Acevedo in, in his book. Um, he has some, some excellent uh, some excellent solved uh, preflop ranges for 100 big blind cash games in, in an environment where there is no rake if you don't go to the flop, but there is a rake if you go to the flop. And in those scenarios, uh, we really don't see calling from the solver except when it's on the button. So it doesn't have a cold calling range if it's, you know, it's in the cutoff facing an under the gun open or it's in the small blind facing a cutoff open. Um, it, it's strictly three bet or fold. So in those cases, we're not seeing a polar three bet range. You know, there, there would be no reason to three bet uh, a king nine suited, but not a king jack suited, which if you're going to have a calling range, then it may make sense that you call the hands in the middle and then you three bet some hands that are like not quite good enough to call and also um, too good to call or, you know, where, where you actively want the raise. Um, the other thing I like to say about this, which and Dara, I think very carefully avoided this language, but you often hear people talk about, well, you know, these are my value three bets and these are my bluff three bets. And just because you're polar doesn't necessarily mean that you have value and, and bluffs. Because the other thing Dara said that I thought was really good is you're almost always rooting for folds when you three bet, even with very strong hands, ace, king, jacks, tens. When there's antis in the pot, um, and not, not to mention your, your, your preference to avoid variance in tournaments anyway, even many of the hands that are in, in the like strong pole of your three betting range, it's still very good for you to get folds, like often better than it is to get calls or, or four bets. Um, so I, mean, I, I think. When, it, when we're talking about early street play, uh, pre-flop, even the flop, it's not always so clear to say, these are my value bets, these are my bluffs. Many hands are, are benefiting significantly from both fold equity and from uh, what you would call pot equity or showdown equity. You know, the, the what we would, you know, it's like on the river, you have very clear, like this hand wants to get called, this hand wants to get a fold. There's really no ambiguity about it. Um, you know, pre-flop when you threw that with ace gang or a similar example on the flop, uh, 10 9 suited on an 8 7 deuce. Maybe you have a flush draw, a two over cards, open ended straight draw. You're probably a favorite, even against many hands, like an, against an overpair or something that, that might call if you re raise all in. Nonetheless, you would prefer that those hands folded. So, you know, are you value betting? Are you bluffing? It's you know, some, somewhere in between. And I think you know, those situations come up a lot on early streets in poker. It's a great point. Um, obviously, uh, if you want more lovely information uh, beautifully described like that you should pick up play optimal poker practical game theory for every poker player um i do have a copy i usually this is where i bring my copy of a book out and i wave in front of the screen but i actually think I've, it's behind me somewhere I've, I've got one i'm using as a coaster there right is. now but I've, I've moved my coffee mug here it is play optimal <laughs> poker <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, look, before we go, I do want to mention something special that is almost upon us, Dara. Uh, we are running a, a little poker tournament on Unibet in uh, about a week and a half's time. Uh, it is to commemorate the 100th episode of the Chip Race. Andrew, you probably passed 100 on your show, I want to say, in 2014 or something. But we we just, just released episode 350. <laughs> oh, look at that. There we go. There we go. 
Uh, do you think we'll get to 350, Dara? No, zero chance. No, we'll get to We're not even going to live that long. <laughs> Uh, always, always with the mortality stuff. Oh God! It was... <laughs> and I know when he says it, you see. So Irish. I know he's really saying he doesn't think I lived that long. You know. Yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, I, I, I famously took on a, a, a live longer bet with Dara Davy, who's considerably younger and healthier than you. So <laughs> you're drawing dead, as far as I'm concerned. Literally. That was a negative free roll for Dara because there's no way he could ever go to Beret or your daughter and collect that. So I, I, I just thought that was a really bad strategic error by him that day. Anyway, uh, we are running this little poker tournament. It is a $100 PKO. It's in the time slot of the Supernova on Unibet. So if you play that, that's our Sunday flagship tournament. We are taking over the Chip Race Go Supernova, which after I came up with as a tagline, I realized that Supernova is when things get destroyed, isn't it? So I don't, Chip Race Go Supernova, but then they kind of, you know, all the little planet bits come back together again, just to form more Chip Race episodes, I guess. It just continues in another form. Yeah, you might be overthinking this, David. <laughs> I spent I spent a lot of time on this uh, whole marketing campaign. Not sure how many people will actually drill down into the details of what a supernova actually is. <laughs> it just sounds good. It does sound good. Okay, so a little bit of bonus stuff going on. So it's 100 quid, PKO, two-day tournament. I've fucked with the structure of the normal supernova. Dara's always very worried when I get my hands on a structure. But you I think much kill the UK IPT with your messing around <laughs> with the structure. <laughs> I didn't ruin the UK IPT. Uh, that's that's lies. That's slander. <laughs> I'm going to take out an answer. I, I do. I, I, I remember very much. I, I think it might have been my very first meeting with Unibet after we were taken on as ambassadors. And <laughs> they said to me, David has some very interesting ideas about how we could change the structure of the Unibet opens. And I said, whatever you do, don't <laughs> listen to him. He has the worst ideas. They're great ideas for pros. They're great ideas for regs. The recreational players hate them. That man killed the UK IPT, and I, I still stand over that decision. Well, uh, on that note, I have changed the structure. I don't think it favours anyone. Basically, it's it's the structure that you should like because you're Mr. PKO, and I decided that 500 bigs deep at the start of a PKO would be ridiculous. So I'm only letting us have 150 bigs, I think, or something like that, and the first levels are particularly slow. So it's sort of, you know, gently we coast along from there. Anyway... There is a few little gimmicks attached. So uh, there will be some shooting stars. Myself, yourself and Amy have bounties on us. Both buy-ins, if we do happen to do a second buy-in, because it is single re-entry, uh, you will win a $250 seat to the Supermoon, the new high roller tournament on Unibet. It's a once a month Sunday job, that one. And we're also selecting 10 former guests of the show. Andrew, if you didn't live in America, you could be one of these people. Um, we have selected 10 people who have been guests on the show. They're going to use their real name or as close to it as possible. And if you knock those guys out, you will get an extra 100 euro bounty. On top of the bounty, you will have won anyway. We also are running uh, two seat added guarantee satellites every day in the week running up to it. So there's loads of value going into the satellite pool as well. And if that wasn't enough, Dara, every single person who cashes gets a copy of PKO Poker Strategy. How about that? Well, How about that? That's the, that, I mean, I, I think that's the main attraction. I think that will just have them flocking in, in the fields. Yeah, yeah. no, it's great to see um, so much added money. In fact, there's so much added money. We were talking about this offline that normally I don't ever recommend anybody should ever re-enter uh, a PKO, but I think it would actually be plus EV to re-enter if you, if, if you bust um, in the re-entry period, given all the added money. 
Yeah, I estimate there's going to be at least three grand. Plus, you know, who knows what that book's worth, Dara? You could literally put a, you know, a notional number on the value of a copy of that book. Yeah, or you could also just put whatever the price is on Amazon at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Guys, thank you so much. It has been a fantastic evening spent with the pair of you. Andrew, thank you so much. I I will confess, Dara and I messed up this booking and we thought we were going to have you on tonight and you thought we were going to have you on Thursday. And in fairness, you were right because you have a very sophisticated booking system that we botched up. So thank you on short notice for you showing up tonight for us. Eric isn't lying. He has the book. I just want to point yeah. out that I wasn't just book, telling yeah. fibs for the sake of the cameras. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David.